Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode, USD Law Professor Frank Pomershine returns to talk about poetry. We are joined by USD Law Professor Frank Pomersheim, uh, returning, I guess, a returning guest uh, to the podcast. Um, we wanted to talk about poetry today, and in kind of preparation for this, I had found um, oh, a kind of a series of bullet points that you had put that compared and contrasted poetry with law. So to begin our discussion, I wanted to read a prompt and just have this give us your, I guess, reaction to it and what it, you were trying to get um, by this statement. You said that poetry and law both report on the human experience, but report from different angles and with different meanings. Both are parts of the whole, but poetry is the larger part of the whole. What do you mean by that? Well, I think what I was trying to get at is that poetry, roughly speaking, tries to provide, for me at least, sort of a larger picture of the human experience. And law is, I think, a bit narrower in terms of its reporting about the human experience in terms of the necessary kind of rules that any society, including our own society, decide is necessary to govern people's kind of conduct. Now, where did poetry like start with you? I mean, did you find yourself as a young teenager scribbling out, you know, poems to, you know, the crush that you had at that particular time? Was it something that came to you later? I mean, how did how did you kind of uh, you know, develop an interest in poetry. Well, I mean, it's a good question. I was actually thinking about it uh, earlier today, and it really goes back to when I was in high school. I went to high school in New York, and I was came from a working-class Catholic family, and I was a typical uh, student in high school, mainly sports and other things. Uh, but when I was taking English as a senior, I had this unbelievable English teacher and he used to recite aloud in class some of the poems of the Romantic poets, Keats and Shelley and Byron, and some of Shakespeare's <clears throat> Julius Caesar and uh, other kind of stuff. And he just did it with this incredible voice. I, I was incredibly moved by the feeling that he put into those poems, and it just kind of kind of captured my own kind of awareness and thing. He said, "Well, that's like really powerful." Now, of course, being a guy, I couldn't really articulate that to anyone else. I just kind of kept it inside. I never spoke to the teacher about it. But I was incredibly moved by it. And I began to read a little bit more poetry, and slowly but surely it became important to me in a way that was never part of my official life. I was not an English major uh, in college, but I always read a lot of poetry. I always felt deeply about it. And occasionally I would make forays in terms of writing about it without too much success. And I think that the point I really started to write about it from an important personal point of view is when I started to have children. Because I noticed with having my own children is that I would observe things with my children and they were incredibly kind of, for me, powerful experiences. And I wanted to be able to remember them. Somehow I was kind of, I've got to remember this. And somehow I had made a connection in my own mind of one of the best ways to remember and translate these experiences was to begin to write poetry. And so I began to write poetry almost solely about uh, my children, and it kind of took off from there. Well, and that answered another question. You know, I wanted to ask, is there a world, you know, an alternative reality where you had become maybe an English professor? Um, You you, you kind of talk, you don't have then classical training in, in poetry. I mean, how important is 
form and style to the poetry that you write versus just kind of the emotional feeling that you might be trying to capture at any given moment? Well, I think for me, and it's taken some time to the form that I most oftentimes write in the context of haiku or the Buddha poems. I mean, they have a very, very kind of short kind of focus. Uh, and the notion is to try to capture some images and some movement in very, very short compass and to make sort of hopefully a brief or telling kind of observation and just kind of leave it. You know, I don't know if you could maybe take a moment to share uh, a poem. I know you've brought some um, of your chat books and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know if you want to take a moment to share one with us right now. Well, sure. Since I mentioned my children, I'll, I'll read two poems that came from my first book a ton of years ago uh, about my kids. And I, I think for me, they captured what I was trying uh, to do. Uh, the first poem goes back to the notion of this is when we only had two children, uh, not three children. And we oftentimes used to go roller skating. There's a roller rink over uh, in Yankton. There's a few other people here. I don't know if you've ever been to that roller rink. Uh, and so to me, that was um, a thing we did. And so this is a poem called Roller Skating with My Son and Daughter on New Year's Eve Afternoon. It is the last skate of the afternoon for couples and trios only. Nicholas on my left, Kate on my right. We skate hand in hand. I close my eyes. We move as one. The blood pulse at eventide. My sins forgiven in their heart's ease. And so for me, you know, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Well, we were just roller skating. That's all my kids were doing. They loved doing it. For me, we were roller skating, but for me, there was something much larger going on, and I wanted to try to uh, capture that. There's another poem that comes from that time. There was a book that I put out called Snaps, <clears throat> and the, the subtitle was Poetry and Prose from a Family Album. <clears throat> and so this is <clears throat> kind of almost the opposite of that, and it's <clears throat> it's called Alpha and Omega for my children. As you walk into the beauty of yourselves, remember you are also walking into history, the bloody earth of suffering and dreams, the broken wing of witness and flight. And there, you know, again, it's like, they're just growing up. They're growing into their <clears throat> their young, beautiful selves, at least from a father's point of view. But there's also another thing going on that they're <clears throat> entering uh, into history. And it's very interesting and strange to look back in the context of the history that they've actually walked into. It wouldn't have been a history that I would have imagined 25, 30-plus uh, <clears throat> years ago. You know, when you read... Um the poem about figure skating. It brought to me the anxiety of being 11 years old and not having a partner in the final skate. So it also uh, brings that to the forefront. H have your kids um, embraced your, your poetry? I mean, mm -hmm. do they kind of view it as a window? Uh, you know, I, I, I almost wonder if it's an age thing. Maybe when they were in high school, they were a little too cool for it. But as they've maybe grown, they've come to kind of appreciate the, the window into your thoughts that at any given point, it, it kind of captured that moment of what you were thinking. And yeah, I mean, I think powerful. they definitely appreciated it, uh, uh, you know, kind of at the time. It was, oh, it's interesting. My dad writes poetry uh, about us. Uh, but later, I, I think it really kind of stuck with them. 
I can remember uh, <clears throat> our oldest daughter, Kate, had uh, <clears throat> one time said to uh, my wife and her mom, she said, don't tell dad I'm starting to wear a bra. He might write a poem about that. <laughs> and, and so that was like her, you know, kind of take about it. Because um, I, I had written a poem about her uh, in the context of a spelling bee in which she had won uh, the middle school competition here in Vermilion and then competed and was, uh, you know, she was exited pretty soon. So oftentimes I... As I said at the beginning, just trying to capture those experiences so that I would remember them. And then sometimes when they actually work, they have more resonance than just as a, as a memory device for, for me and for them. And they, they recall, I think, almost all of that quite, quite fondly. Well, it reminds me of uh, another kind of passage that you wrote comparing law with poetry. You said that poetry gives shelter to both the moment and eternity. And I, I read that and I had to stop and think about that for a second. And I, I think it's a great example of the two poems you just read. You know, you're in one sense capturing the oh, kind of fleeting moment of, of your kid's childhood, right? You know, the, a moment that they have probably long ago forgotten, but obviously resonated with you. And in the same sense, you're always ever present of the challenges maybe that your kids are walking into, right? How, I mean, when you start to craft a, a poem, is it that you feel inspired to write on a, a particular topic? Or um, do you go out with sort of an intention where you're looking to maybe write a poem on some common day activity that you know most people wouldn't think would be memorable, but you do find you know something important in that. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think I'm just sort of conscious of whatever experience I'm having, whether that will or will not lead to a poem. And you know, I think it just becomes something that you're thinking about, not necessarily in a conscious way, but you know, in a subconscious way. And then occasionally, at least for me, because the poems are usually quite short and stuff. Usually a certain image might come to me and I'll get up right away if it's early in the morning and just write it down and begin to see where it's actually going to go. And so for me, since I write in these really short forms, they usually start with a particular phrase or image. And for me, one of the things about writing is <clears throat> to me there's a wonderful description by Robert Frost of how he thinks about uh, poetry. And he has defined poetry as a momentary stay against confusion. And to me, I always found that really right kind of on the money because I think oftentimes writing is about bringing order, even if you're bringing order to disorder and you want the writing to reflect that disorder. To me, it's a momentary kind of stay against personal confusion, even when it's very painful confusion or just ordinary confusion of being a human being. To me, poetry, when, when I finish a poem, you know, whether it's good or not, that's kind of a separate question. But for me, it ends kind of this confusion I might have about trying to understand something and describe it in a particular way. And for me, I've always kind of found that um, accurate in my own sense. You know, you kind of touched on something there at the end when you finish a poem. I mean, we've we've had a lot of – that's what's cool about this podcast. We've had a lot of creative people on and they've talked about kind of their creative process and how they get over the lumps when, you know, they don't feel particularly inspired. Um, one thing that is 
particularly interesting, I think, with more traditional artists, people that um, you know paint something on a on a canvas. You know, is the notion of when a piece of art is actually done. I mean, it, when it when it gets published in a in a book, is that when when the poem is done? Do you find yourself coming back to mm, phrases, sentences that you maybe wrote ten or fifteen years ago, and you go, you know what? I'm going to change that a little bit. I, I, I don't know if that – does that happen or, or no? Yeah, I, I think most poets would admit that on some level that maybe a poem is never finished, uh, that there's always a chance that you might want to change it, find a better way of kind of talking about it. And <clears throat> that's certainly been true in my experience. Sometimes I finish a poem or think that I finish a poem and there's something about it that, yes, it's finished, but – not quite in a way I couldn't quite explain and then I'll just set it aside and then at some point maybe something will come to to add to it to subtract from it to disc- to find out that oh it's actually rubbish and just like throw it away and so um, I, I think for a, a lot of poets you know revision is always something that they might be thinking about even when it's published uh, because oftentimes poets, when they <clears throat> if they have enough longevity and they're issuing kind of a final collection of poems, oftentimes a number of the poems will be revised in some way. And to me, you know, because I'm not trained as a poet in any way, it's just your own personal sense of when, yeah, this seems to be it. This is what I want to say. This is the best way I can say it. And then you kind of put it out there in different ways and you see if people react to it in, in, in a way that <clears throat> indicates that, you know, it reached them. I mean, I think of poetry in a way, particularly small, short Buddha poems, these haiku poems. You know, you're just sending something out there and you hope it reaches somebody. And if it reaches somebody <clears throat> and they read it and it means something to them, then for me, that's it. You know, that's the whole point of writing. You know, you're clarifying something to yourself, but you hope that it's more than just your own private clarification. That when it reaches someone else, that it will mean something to them. And to me, that's how I think about poetry. You know, these Buddha poems. I don't know if we can just stop and talk about that for a second. Where, where did this idea come from? I mean, that's kind of the particular strand of, of poem that you would usually deliver. Um, you know, we talked about it the, in the last podcast before, like a class. Usually a short five, ten word poem was all. It had a good way of just kind of like centering everyone, for lack of a better word, I, I, I thought, before class. Um when did that kind of come up in the linear progression of your poetry? I mean, how yeah. did you think of that as an idea? Well, it just happened in, in a way. I mean, I didn't set out to, well, I should think about something. You know, I'd been writing poetry for um, a considerable amount of time, and then I had moved to writing straight-up kind of haiku poems, which are a strict kind of Japanese form, three lines, five syllables, 17 syllables, five. And then somehow I had written one poem uh, actually about Buddha meets <clears throat> Tina Turner. Um, I was like, where did that come from? And I read it a few times, and people like really liked it because it's sort of a strange kind of, seemingly a strange combination. 
And then somehow those things began to kind of come to me. You know, I, I started saying I got an email from Buddha and stuff. And then I finally had – this is connected with my teaching. You know, at some point I decided to um, take a risk and begin to read some poems in class. For me, a big teaching thing – and Michael, you're one of my students, so uh, you, you can see this or not see it or agree with it – not agree with it – is that – the biggest thing for me is being able to engage students. You know, teaching in a law school context, yes, you have to master complex um, subject matter and hopefully you love it and can, can communicate that to students. But you have to be able to engage students. And I've always been thinking about what are the best ways you can engage students because when I began my teaching career uh, at Sinti Glacier College on the Rosewood Sioux Indian Reservation, that became a big thing for me. I was like, well, how can I reach my students? I mean, I know I know this stuff. I know it's important to them. But how can I really engage them? And, you know, I, I can't say I, I thought about it in a linear way. It's just like, well, I'll put myself out there. Hopefully my students will on some level perceive that and say, okay, yeah, this is important stuff. But <clears throat> he's also trying to reach me on a different level and I will – that's what I want. That's what I need. And so in, in the context of teaching in class, particularly when I started teaching at the law school, it's like, wow, this is law school this is incredibly rigid. It's like too formal. <laughs> and, and when I, I think – I don't know if it would be true or not. When I look back when I first started teaching here, I, I think that I was probably like pretty rigid and <clears throat> I was never comfortable with that. I mean I don't, I don't know if that's true. And so over time – what are ways that I could <clears throat> reach my students? And poetry became one of them. And then when I started doing these Buddha poems, um, you know, at first I was thinking, well, does this really fit? You know, and then pretty quick I just like gave that up. I mean, all poems fit everywhere. That's my thinking. So I, <laughs> I, uh, it's only on rare circumstances that I actually pick a poem that fits the class, you know, and as you said, I mean, I just try to kind of set the stage and see, and and for me, it was important to hear back from students. I mean, students generally who have ever spoken to me about it or in their evaluation speak very positively, both specifically and broadly uh, about the poems. I mean, we had one time in class this year, you know, I had just like launched into materials and somebody just shot up their hand and said, what, no, no poem today? You know, and I, it was like, great. You know, I mean, I had just kind of forgotten. And then I read that one poem, I, I think it was Buddha's Ode to Craft. And somebody said, could you read that again? And for me, whether it shows or not, that's like incredible that students are engaged by what you're uh, trying to say in the context of using poetry in the context of teaching at a law school. You know, I love the... Oh, abstraction of the Buddha. And I think that that is – it's a clever kind of rhetorical uh, device because it's kind of this monolithic, all-knowing, all-understanding, um, humble figure that you can kind of project your own emotions on or impute your own sort of understanding of what what the Buddha would do, right? I mean – how much of that figures into it? I mean, do you really like place yourself as this uh, abstraction of the Buddha? How how the Buddha would view you know the absurdity of well, his life, or, or is it a little bit different than that? Well, it's a little bit of each. I mean, people have asked me like, "Are you a Buddhist?" Right, and the answer is um, maybe. On a certain day, at a certain time. I mean, I've read a lot about Buddhism. I, I've never gone to a Buddhist monastery or anything. But it just seems to be 
that he, because he embodies so many different things, is a resonant figure for me in the context of poetry, and it seems to have worked. And so people were some people over time ask, why the Buddhist thing? So I actually have I've written a little prose poem about why Buddha. Well, that's a good segue. I, I didn't. I was going to ask if you could read us maybe a Buddha poem. Yeah. So this is it. This poem is Buddha asks why Buddha because someone asked me, say, you know, where do these Buddha poems come from? Why Buddha? Somebody said to me and it made me think, and so I put this together. So this is Buddha asks why Buddha because he is wise yet foolish, holy, yet secular, engaged with this world, yet not engaged with this world, intense, yet indifferent, eternal, yet transient. He embodies both solitude and community, a relative who is also a stranger. He is laconic, attentive, funny, and humble, a celebrant, an elegist, a welder of moments, and stonemason of residue, birds on his shoulder. So for me, that's it. And you can parse that any way you want. But, you know, part of it is he embodies so many qualities that seem to be, like, opposed to each other. And to me, part of Buddhism and a Buddha figure is... <clears throat> All experience is equivalent. And so I think that is sort of, the, the for me, the governing notion of, of why Buddha, because he embodies so many different things. You know, what um, I guess would be another one of your favorite kind of Buddha poems, is there one that you kind of come back to or you find people really react well to? Well, there's not one in particular that I come back to. <clears throat> there's one um, that when I wrote it, um, I said to myself in a way, um, I, I really like this poem. And over time, many people said that it really worked for them and hit them in a particular way. But this is called Buddha Visits <clears throat> with His Oncologist. And so, like, you're smiling. And so, like, whenever I say I'm going to read that poem, people almost always smile because it's like Buddha visits his... <laughs> you know, it just seems like it doesn't, like, fit together. But <clears throat> I'll, I'll read the poem and you can see if, if it works. Because the poem is trying to think about, in, in a different way, uh, about how most people think about cancer. Most people think about cancer is that it's a battle that you have to win. It's a fight. This poem takes a completely different approach to the notion of dealing with cancer in a very short <clears throat> context. So Buddha speaks with his oncologist. Not a war to win, but a peace to find in the body's diplomacy. And for me... <clears throat> When I wrote that, and it's not like sort of bragging about it, but I just said that's exactly what I wanted to say in the context, particularly the way it ends, is that when a person has cancer, I don't have cancer, so I'm not writing from personal experience. It's like <clears throat> it's in your body. 
And I guess there are two ways of dealing with it. You can deal with it in the context of that it's a war to fight or <clears throat> it's a matter of a, trying to find peace. And I like the phrase in the body's diplomacy. So I think for people who have to engage in that kind of encounter, those are roughly speaking the options that are available to see it as a war to win <clears throat> or as a peace to find within the body. And for me, when I've read it over time, and at one, <clears throat> one point it went out as a separate Buddha card, I would have over time numbers of people said, you know, that really spoke to me. I have someone in my family who has cancer and <clears throat> No, that touched them in a way as providing a different way of kind of thinking about it. <laughs> I don't know if this is like an appropriate way to turn the conversation from that. That was very emotional and moving. It reminds me of this moment in class that happened earlier this year. And I think you were a little shell-shocked by it. And you kind of had to talk about it when you got to class. Um, but you told the story where you ended up kind of interacting with a with somebody right before kind of entered in class and they stopped you and talked actually about your poetry and how it was really meaningful to them and impacted their life in a really significant way. And, you know, kind of wryly, you said, you tell this story to all of us, we're all kind of hanging on pins and needles. And then you go, and then I have to teach, you know, my two o'clock criminal law class. So how do I go from here? Right? How, how, I mean, do you have this experience a lot where people you know, have reached out to you and said that your poetry has really impacted them in meaningful ways. How do you, like, deal with that, I guess? Well, I, I don't have a formula. I mean, I, I'm always sort of touched by it uh, <clears throat> because in some ways that I, I don't expect it. Uh, and so when people say, <clears throat> you know, broadly speaking, you know, they might be laughing and say, oh, I really love those Buddha poems. They just make me laugh. Uh, and, you know, it's great. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I was going through a difficult time and I was reading some of your Buddha poems. And it just like, for, for me in that context, I guess I probably just say thank you or, or say nothing because sometimes <clears throat> the best response is just like silence. It's just like acknowledging that a person knowingly or unknowingly has said something incredibly powerful <clears throat> coming from them to you. And they might think <clears throat> about it in the context, well, you know, you probably hear this all the time. I'm not telling you something you don't know. And that is definitely <clears throat> not how I sort of take those uh, experiences. You know, poetry to me is so intimate. I mean, I think everybody to a certain extent is an artist, right? Whether they uh, work on buildings and it's the architecture that, that they, you know, might be kind of in – imputing in, into a structure. Um, I like to do photography. It's really easy for me to show somebody a picture. They either like it or they don't, right? But it's not a total reflection on me as who I am, what I think, the emotions that I have. Yeah, I, I feel like I've written poetry before. I, I don't know if I would ever share it with another person. I mean, how did you get over that? I, that to me seems like a big hurdle to jump, I guess. Well, <clears throat> I, I think it is. I, I think for me, you know, coming from... Uh, a working class Catholic family in New York City, like showing your feelings is not like a big thing, but like definitely no. And so when I, you know, I wasn't conscious of it, but when I started doing some of this stuff and it was reflective of deeply held um, experiences and feelings I had, you know, I was in some ways kind of not in the expression, but when it was out there, kind of guarded, you know, what would people say, you know? 
you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, the way you explain that case, that's just like wrong, <laughs> like terrible. <laughs> well, okay, it's like an intellectual thing, and um, not I'm saying willing, that happened by right. the way, in, in class, <laughs> but, but maybe, but maybe. <laughs> be willing to accept that. But you know, if I've written a really personal poem and I put it out there, and people are, you know, uh, <clears throat> they're very polite. But if someone would say, you know, that's like awful, you know, or it didn't connect with me or, or you know, it, it just doesn't work. Well, that'd be tough to kind of to deal with. Uh, but over time, at least for me, the general reaction has been, you know, sort of positive. So I'm the kind of person that's been, you know, encouraged to continue from, just from my own personal point of view to do it. I mean, the whole thing about getting poetry kind of published and stuff. It was just like like tremendous kind of happenstance. I mean, I started, <clears throat> there's a person, he's now retired, who taught English at uh, at SDSU, a guy by the name of Chuck Woodard. And I really liked Chuck. He was a, <clears throat> we were active together in peace and justice kind of thing. He was an English teacher, ex-Marine and stuff. And so he had a habit of when he would be writing you a note, he would oftentimes have not one of his poems, but he would just have like a poem and then he would be sending you a note that may or may not make any reference to the poem. And I just started doing that myself with poems that I had written. You know, I just co copied that kind of form and I started to do that. And people generally had <clears throat> responded very positively to the poem because the text – the handwritten text had nothing usually to do with the poem, and they, they kind of responded very, very favorably. And then, this is many years ago, you can look it up on the internet, is that I was a commentator on uh, South Dakota Public Radio. They rotated three or four of us, and I had written kind of, I would usually write like short essays. And, you know, it's like weird being on radio, it's weird doing a podcast, there's no real audience, so you're just saying stuff. And so um, I had had a number of these um, reports from South Dakota Public Radio, and I just ran into someone at a demonstration, and he said, you know, I really like the stuff you say on uh, public radio. I'm starting a small press. You have a book? Like, we'd be happy to publish it. And I said, well, I had written a fair number of poems, and I said, well, yeah, I could put these together. This was volume one, snaps one, just about kids in the family. And he <clears throat> was gung-ho to publish it, um, Rose Hill Books, and we published it and did it locally and some tracked the book, and people kind of liked it. And, you know, it was reviewed in the Argus Leader and stuff, and so all of a sudden, you know, total happenstance, you know, here I was like a published poet. Right. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I started doing the, the Buddha poems in class and led to the, the chapbooks and stuff. And, you know, periodically, like twice a year, I put out like a poetry card, usually three Buddha, Buddha poems in a triptych, and they <clears throat> have wonderful graphic art that people put together, and I have a mailing list. And that mailing list is now about like 450 people. And <clears throat> just send the stuff out and, you know, the, the response has been generally very, very positive to to the, the poems themselves. But they have like beautiful graphics that go with them. And like, you know, when you live your life, well, you're all too young, but when you live your life, it's just like one thing after the other. But when you reach a certain point, stuff has begun to accumulate in your life. And so, like, 
getting ready for this and talking to you, Michael, it just makes me think about the whole trajectory of that sort of poetry part of my life and how it's all, most in terms of getting published, etc., it was all like fortuitous. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Well, and it makes me think in the law school, if you're in the courtroom, you're kind of up in that upper gallery. There's still there's some work of yours up there, correct? Mm -hmm. Where did that project come from, I guess? You know, it, it, it just another thing. Somebody said uh, <clears throat> a woman who was a, um, the associate dean at, at one point, uh, she just said, <clears throat> you know, Frank, we should <laughs> like totally out of nowhere. We, we should just hang some of your poems in the courtroom. Like I, after I got up off the floor, I was like, like totally cool. Let, let's do that. And so I picked some poems, and uh, Teresa Carlisle, who was my secretary to point, put together the graphics that go with it, and they were just like, yeah, let's put these up in the courtroom. Uh, Teresa did that? Well, she did the graphics. Oh, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. Teresa's now uh, the registrar, registrar at the yeah. law school. I didn't realize that she was involved with that as well. That's really cool. Um, what, at this point, maybe, do you get to a certain point where you go, I'm done with the Buddha thing? You're uninspired by that? Have you kind of moved on? Where are you at with kind of your poetry right now? Yeah, no. I, the Buddha thing has not been exhausted for me uh, in any way. I mean, I continue to write in that vein. The response from people generally, however one measures that, continues to be really strong. Occasionally I think, well, maybe at some point – it won't work in a way. I mean, if all of a sudden I decided I should be writing <clears throat> very, very long dramatic monologues <clears throat> or epic poems, which I don't think that's really in me, but at some point there might be kinds of poems that <clears throat> don't really lend themselves to the, the Buddha format, which is very flexible and, and stuff. But and I guess I've learned, you know, it's all subjective in terms of your own personal experience to keep doing something until somehow, you know, you just get the feeling that it doesn't really work and you see yourself either consciously or unconsciously, you know, going in a new and different direction. You know, I don't know how long we, we can keep you on here. I don't know if you can just, if you just want to turn to a page and read a poem. I, I don't know if there's a particular one in mind or if we want to do it random happenstance. I'd be curious. Well, I've got a bunch here, so why don't we just take a group of them. I think you had mentioned before there's a poem that I read in class, and it was a poem last year. I was developing this thing in my Indian law class, is that I, I wanted people to to do even more. And I developed this phrase, which I started using in Indian law, like <clears throat> two years ago, I wanted my students to pour it all out. You know, I said, like, you know, you got to do more for me. You know, I, I know you're engaged in the class, but, you know, you got to really dig deeper. And as part of that digging deeper, this is like a separate thing. I decided that I want my students to write book reviews. And so they could choose from two works by Louise Erdrich and two... <clears throat> Uh, two works by um, another uh, Indian author. And the assignment was just like, read these novels, tell me uh, how they connect with themes in the class, and if it works, how they actually connect with your own personal experience. 
And you know, I'm reading, of course, I'm reading them anonymously. When I first did it last, not this fall, which I did again, but last fall, I read some and they just like, kind of completely knocked me over. People had gone like so deep into themselves in terms of talking about both Native and non-Native people, what it is to grow up on a reservation in South Dakota or not grow up on a reservation in South Dakota and how being a, a poor rural white person enabled them to connect with Indian people a little bit better and how the Indian law field trip in many cases <clears throat> was very revealing to me. So I was completely knocked out by how deep many students had gone <clears throat> in talking about it. And I did again this past fall, kind of the same thing. And so <clears throat> this phrase became almost like a mantra in class, like <clears throat> I'd call on students and say, they'd say, say, it's like, not enough. You know, got to pour it all out. Okay. And then sometimes students would preface their response, say, okay, Professor Palm, I'm going to pour it all out now. Or they would write this stuff. So, <clears throat> so I was thinking of a poem in that kind of context. And so <clears throat> the title of the poem is Buddha Sends a Hunter-Gatherer Poem to Professor Palm's Indian Law Class. And I use hunter-gatherer in a conscious kind of way. Because in the context of early Indian law cases, like being a hunter-gatherer society was <clears throat> seen as being a very primitive way to organize a society as opposed to agriculture. So I so conscious I put hunter-gatherer in there to kind of conjure that image of more <clears throat> equality-based kind of native societies. <clears throat> and so this is it. It's also I was sort of conscious of uh, – <clears throat> Because I think it's a real challenge for students these days to avoid complicity with the system at large. And so, so the poem, this is the poem. Cut complicity. Gather reason. Seek balance. Show respect. Find spirit. Pour it all out. And for me, when I thought about that, that's the stuff <clears throat> that I want my students to have in the context of practicing law. And particularly practicing law in and around Indian country. You know, and I told you this before we came on the air. I mean, I actually wrote kind of the – and it's funny because I have a mistranslation. I had it as cut completely on uh, what I'd read. I don't know if that necessarily changes the meeting. But for me, it was like I always – when the anxiety would reach a certain level, I'd read the poem and just be like, you know what? I'm going to do the best I can, pour it all out, and live with the results, right? So I thought it was a great mantra to kind of go into – a very stressful final situation. It brought some peace of mind to me. I, how, you know, we, we've talked about it a little bit. You know, sometimes students really resonate with the poetry. Um, other times, who knows, you know. Uh, how much is it added, I think, to the value, you know, of your class? I mean, you've talked about it. You kind of have this mailing list of, pe of people um, that you send your, your poems to. How much has it resonated with students? How, how much of it has it be become kind of an essential part of a Professor Palmersheim class? Well, I mean, I, I do it in all my classes, and the response generally has been very, very positive. You know, obviously it can be the students who don't like it. They're, they're, they'd be hesitant to tell me that. I mean, I get that. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a student say, like, Knock it out. <laughs> yeah, stop that. I don't like it. So... <laughs> And I, and I think it works on different levels for students. One is just to relieve, you know, stress in some ways or have some observation that is funny or insightful or, or not. It's not related directly to the materials, but, you know, sometimes it is on reflection. If you have a broad kind of way of thinking about it, 
it does really uh, work with the context of the materials. And for me, and I can't quite articulate it, uh, that broadside that you were reading a little bit from is try to say that, you know, poetry and law have, have a lot kind of in common. And um, I, I want students to, to kind of feel that. And, you know, uh, I have a good friend who teaches in the uh, criminal justice department, sort of Mike Roach, and Mike and I often talk about, like, in class, like pushing the envelope. And Mike was very supportive of a lot of the stuff I've done in terms of pushing the envelope to try to reach students on kind of a different and deeper level so that they kind of respond in, in a way that they don't even believe themselves capable of doing. And that's like a risky kind of business because who am I? I, mean, I come from like nowhere myself. So I don't, you know, I don't have the privilege of coming from a privileged position to to be able to do this. You know, I'm a working class Catholic boy from New York City. Do you have one more for us? Can I can I ask you to read one more poem? Sure. And this is I, I could read a few more, but <clears throat> this is a there's a there's a painter called Joseph Albers and he he's done you should look him up. I mean he he's done all these poems <clears throat> that are very uh, captivating and they're all in the context. They're very simple. Many of them are called homage to the square. And when you look at some of his poems, they some of his <clears throat> paintings, these Hamish's Square, they look just like a design used by Amish quilt makers, diamond in the square. So I was kind of struck by that seems like an odd kind of connection between this ultra modern abstract painter painting homage to the square and these traditional women Amish quilt makers <clears throat> using a design called uh, Diamond in the Square. So I, I try to put those two things together. <clears throat> so this is called Buddha's Homage to Joseph Albers and Amish Quilt Makers. Whether paint or fabric, whether brush or needle, whether stroked or sewn, whether art or craft, whether God or godless, whether name or nameless, homage gathers plain and simple. And each one of those <clears throat> phrases kind of compares the way he would be painting, at least the way I would understand it, and the way the quilt makers would be making their quilt. And at the end of the day, they're coming from, to me, like wildly different kind of points of view, experiences. And yet, it's all a homage to the plain, uh, to the plain and simple. And to me, you know, that's one of the interesting things uh, about poetry is whether you can bring together uh, two things that seem <clears throat> dissimilar. And if a poem actually works, you can convince the reader that these two dissimilar things are actually quite similar. And oftentimes, poetry can be a way of showing us <clears throat> connections between the apparently disconnected. And I like that definition that I think comes from the poet John Crow Ransom, is that oftentimes that's what poetry does. It shows us connections about things or two things that we ordinarily would think as not being connected in any way. And that's one thing, that's one of the, for me, one of the powers of poetry is that it connects the apparently disconnected and... <clears throat> Yeah. I could read a poem about patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. This is called Buddha's Ode to Patriotism. Shower love, sow wisdom, it's the bomb, stars on a flag. And the word bomb 
It's a play on words. In print, it's B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. So to me, I, I, I like it because the notion sounds the same. It's kind of a homonym, but B-O-M-B is quite different from B-A-L-M. All right. Let me read another poem before getting to that. Uh, and this is called uh, Buddha Stands with Standing Rock. And in the context of Buddha Stands with, with Standing Rock, it, it was like, well, how, how would that actually work? And so and there's been a very positive kind of response to uh, this. So this is called Buddha Stands with Standing Rock. Water against oil, flow against frack, prairie against core, horse against tank, song against empire, spirit against capital, vision against history, peace against war, life against death. Midako Oyasa. And, you know, it just tries to put those two, um, those two sides together. You know, one question that comes to mind, you obviously teach Indian law here at the University of South Dakota, and we've talked before um, about some of your field trips. How have, I guess, Native American communities recepted uh, your poetry? I mean, have that audience generally enjoyed it? I, I don't know how, mu- how many have sort of a theme. Um, I mean, we talked about the hunter-gatherer one a moment ago. How has that been received in Native American communities, your poetry? Well, I think in terms of Native American students that they generally are – as responsive as any other students in the context of reading them in class. I haven't done any readings in Indian country recently, although I did some back in the day. Uh, Sometimes they get a little bit of reference in the context of uh, some of the opinions that I've written. There are Native people around um, the state and around the country who are on the Buddha mailing list. They seem to respond uh, really favorably. Um, To give an example is uh, two years ago when we were on the Indian law field trip, we were traveling and we usually eat lunch in in winter, South Dakota, before we head to the heart of the reservation. And there's usually four or five cars and – Somebody had called. I was riding with Bo Bearshield, and somebody was riding behind me, and they said they had written a Buddha poem about my driving. And uh, they had texted it to Bo. I, I don't have a phone that gets messages. so And, and Bo was reading it, and he, he started to chuckle. And then when we got to uh, the subway in winter, you know, we just went in, and I wasn't really thinking about it. I just said, listen up, everybody. Bo's going to read this Buddha poem. And Bo was kind of like shocked and he just had to kind of stand up and he was a good trooper. He had it on his phone and he wrote he, – he, he read the Buddha poem written by students about my – Well, and I, I've actually got it up. Can I read it for sure, the audience? Sure, it would be great. Um, the title is Buddha Follows the Swerving State Van, The Rebellious Driver, No Lines Does He Follow, Laughter, Death. Yeah, and then you know that was, and when when he was reading in the subway, they're they're ordinary people like from Winter, South Dakota. There. So like, hey, you're a rural person from Trip County, and you're at the subway, and all these kids there, these law students, they're reading Buddha poems. Like, 
I don't know what they made of it. <laughs> Hopefully it was like a, a good thing. Just another day in South Dakota, yeah. I think. But in, in terms of the Native thing, I had read um, this fall this really wonderful book about the ghost dance religion, you know, putting it in like a completely kind of different context because usually when you read about it, it's it just seen as this like kind of short – kind of messianic thing that never went any place. <clears throat> and he put it, this historian put it in a much broader kind of context, and I was really kind of struck by it. And so <clears throat> I wrote this somewhat longer piece, and I'll read it. It's called Buddha's Prose Ode to the Ghost Dance Religion. It swept across the Great Basin and northern and southern plains, Paiute, Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho, moment to moment and the long haul, in this world and the next, a braid of pine nuts and dreams in a gathering of tradition and prophecy. It held amidst dominant onslaught, but at some point it slipped away. Yet its essential message remains vibrant and alive, health, work, peace, and well-being for all in communion with the Messiah who will help restore the earth to native hearts and hands. Take heed or take comfort, my friend. The ghost dance is coming again. Down by the river of poverty, caught in the undertow of a spiritual yearning to be free. A creed of affection and affirmation. A bridge across time and history. A new unity for a new day a unity transcending difference and despair, a pragmatic fervor in the dance and afterwards too, renewal and redemption in a transforming presence. And what it tries to do is just to kind of put it in like a larger context and suggests maybe that something like it will be coming back. You know, I have been trying to think of a way to actually kind of conclude this conversation. And I was going to try to ask a question about what you would want to be remembered from your poetry, but I feel like that's kind of self-explanatory. Your poetry maybe speaks for itself. Uh, instead, I'd ask, what do you like write about right now? If you were going to go write a poem today at this, at this moment, what are you kind of inspired with? Well, I might try to write a poem, uh, <clears throat> Buddha does a podcast. You know, it's like, could I make that work? Uh, and, you know, you, you just see what happens, you know. And I read this um, poem in class, and it resonated with a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people were into sort of doing the DNA family thing to see what their family connection. I'm, I'm myself, I'm not into that. But I was thinking, well, what if Buddha did this? And so I read this. I don't know if you remember. I think I read this in class. It's called BuddhasAncestry.com. Yeah. And just the title, like people like oftentimes brings kind of a smile to their face because they don't think, well, it's like Buddha Ancestry. It's like they don't fit together. Or maybe, maybe they do. I mean, it's the whole thing about poetry. It's like those things don't fit together. Well, maybe it does actually fit together. And so, so BuddhasAncestry.com. Life always finds its dark cousin. Families like that. And a number of people, it just kind of made them smile, but they also found it kind of resonant, is that, 
you know, oftentimes people get into this ancestry thing and they expect, you know, to find all these kind of glorious kind of roots. And sometimes it kind of goes in the opposite direction that you find that dark cousin that you didn't know you had. You might have been just as happy if you never knew you had that dark cousin. Um, <laughs> with that, uh, Professor Palmersheim, thank you so much for joining us. We might have to do a round three here and bring you on for some more poems. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 